Okay, hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the STOA. Today is October 3rd. Uh, I'm Nick. And I'm Eddie. And this is our second of 21 episodes of a show that we're calling School of Coin. And today we're going to talk about Bitcoin culture, uh, terminology, and Bitcoin elders. So the Bitcoin Stow is a community-funded platform, and if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on the homepage at bitcoinstoa.com. And with that said, let's dive into it. And maybe a good place to start is talking about the fact that Eddie and I know each other uh, through a health, health network called the Foot Collective. And through that network, um, we're both foot nerds, and we basically act as health nodes to serve the broader community. And this community of foot nerds has a manifesto or a statement of beliefs uh, that essentially people read before applying to become a foot nerd. And this seems to self-select a very specific type of individual and has created a really cool culture within the community of foot nerds that essentially revolves around leading by example and employing critical thinking. And so on the same note, you know, Bitcoin's a monetary network, but it's also a community and communities inevitably develop their own culture. So today we're going to unpack sort of our perspectives when it comes to Bitcoin culture. And maybe a good place to start is just defining the term. So Eddie, what, what does culture mean to you? When someone says culture, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And probably something, you know, it's like uh, that we that I think about uh, a lot when I was younger. And, uh, uh, you know, thinking about it this week, I was realizing, okay, how am I going to redefine culture? So I ripped two two little brief uh, definitions Mm -hmm. that I that I just wanted to to riff off of real quick. The first was from free free dictionary dot com. And it just talks about culture as the arts beliefs, customs, institutions, and other products of human work and thought considered as a unit. So considered as a whole. And to back it up even further, I think that uh, one of the the definitions that I really like uh, was from the online etymology dictionary. And uh, one of the first definitions of culture that I found in that uh, in that space was uh, referring to the tilling of land, preparing the earth for crops. And that's like a Latin base. And I really think that that kind of hit it on the nail for me as far as defining culture. Um, It is a it's an ongoing process, kind of like nature, kind of like life. It is naturally occurring. And, um, and it is created within societies. And so I think, you know, uh, culture is unifying and in a way, um, you know, that is, that is one of the most powerful ways that, that humans can connect and identify as, as a, as a human race. So yeah. I don't know, that was kind of pretty, pretty broad, but this, it's, a, it's a really exciting topic for me. And I think that um, especially in today's day and age um, where there's so much divisiveness um, in, in our culture, um, that we can really start to think about these terms and, uh, and kind of redefine them for, for ourselves and what they mean to us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are great definitions. And I think culture is the kind of thing that we is like part of our, uh, language in modern day, but it's not often that we actually think of like, what does culture actually mean? Um, and I think that the definition you, you, the two definitions you put there were great. And I think it's really just like, when I think of culture, I think of, the knowledge, the beliefs, and the customs um, of a society. And, and those kind of emerge out of the collective consciousness of everyone in that society. 
And I think, um, you know, regardless of whether you're intentionally trying to create a culture or not, it's creating itself. And so I think having a bit of an understanding about what culture is allows you to be um, essentially lead by example and, and embody the values that you want to see in your culture. And I think the cool thing about um, Bitcoin culture is I feel like a big part of the culture is actually hard coded into the protocol where, you know, just like that manifesto for the Footner program, the protocol itself, the Bitcoin protocol is essentially the self-selection criteria to bring people into this community, right? Like if you don't agree with the Bitcoin protocol or the values that it embodies, and we can talk about those, then you're probably not going to join the network. And so we, we almost gather this group of people that are already aligned on a certain subset of values, which sort of um, emerge out of the protocol. And, you know, I think we're, we're so early right now um, in, in Bitcoin's journey, and we're at the very start. And so every person in Bitcoin, every Bitcoiner, let's call them, uh, is essentially helping to build the foundational culture of what this will be in future. And if you look at money, as the foundational language that society is built on, the culture of the money uh, and the values of the monetary system that we use actually embed themselves into the uh, as values in the in the in society. And so we're like at a really important time right now, where I think having these conversations about culture is really important. Um, and so, based on your definitions of culture, when someone says, "What does Bitcoin culture mean to you?" or or explain Bitcoin culture, sort of what what comes to mind there? Yeah, <clears throat> I don't think I've ever answered that question before, but from my personal experience, I would say that that Bitcoin culture is kind of like you said, Nick, it's uh, if you want to play by the rules of the protocol and the foundational beliefs of the system, uh, maybe resonate with something that that you see within yourself, then I, I would say the Bitcoin culture is very open. They're very, um, the culture is very transparent. That's another thing that, that it is. It is very transparent. So you're going to be able to learn exactly what everybody else is learning. Um, and that's just the nature of the, the, the Bitcoin protocol itself. Yeah. Um, so I think, I, you know, just to start there, I think transparency and open-mindedness and, you know, the sharing of information that kind of all like ties in with like decentralization, I think um, would make sense to me. I think that that is kind of a good basis of the Bitcoin culture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a lot of those points that you just said I had there where, um, and you know, that openness and um, you know, Bitcoin being an open network, it doesn't care who you are, where you come from, how much money you have, what you look like. The nature of Bitcoin is such that if you can, make a long string of numbers, you are welcomed onto this network. And so this whole idea of embracing diversity and not discriminating is like hard coded, right? Like there's no way of changing that. And we all kind of agree that that is important enough when we signed on to join the network. And I think another one that comes to mind or another two points is like a strong conviction, like people that are in the Bitcoin space have a conviction uh, in their belief for sound of, of what sound money is and that Bitcoin is sound money. And I think it also leads into this culture of like financial responsibility, right? When you understand the importance of sound money and what sound money can do, uh, for you to sort of store your time and energy, it makes you a lot more financially responsible because now there's an opportunity cost for everything you buy, right? Instead of buying that car, that's a bit more expensive. Well, 
the opportunity cost is the, the, the amount of Bitcoin you could buy with that extra price. And so I think it makes a more financially responsible group of people. Um, and, you know, even that's proved within the protocol where it's like hard coded scarcity. We're not going to change that because that's a really important, that's a really important element for sound money. So transparency, uh, not discriminating, um, honesty, because, because everyone has access to all the inner workings of Bitcoin and can verify, you know, don't trust verify. I think that's a really important part of the culture where, um, everyone has equal access to the information. There's not, there's no gatekeepers and there's no rulers. There's just a set of rules. If you align with the rules, um, then you can play the game. Anyone can play the game. And as long as you abide by the rules, we're all on equal playing field, regardless of whether you're micro strategy with billions of dollars in Bitcoin or someone in El Salvador that um, has like four US dollars in Bitcoin. We're, we're seen as equal and we have equal privileges on the network. And I think that's, that's a really cool part of this. Um, and I also think Bitcoiners are very generous with their time. And I think that's actually a byproduct of reducing your time pressure, knowing that you have your money in a safe vehicle gives you extra time. And Bitcoiners in general seem to be very generous with their time in terms of education, taking the time to speak about Bitcoin to someone who might be curious, uh, doing podcasts. And so, yeah, it's just a really, it really aligns um, deeply with some of the values that I hold. Um, and I think that's a really cool thing. It's, it's nice to see it's nice to have that protocol having some hard-coded elements that you know aren't going to change. I think that gives me a little bit of faith that, you know, this culture is here to stay. It's not going to veer too far off the tracks because it's like embedded into this thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I uh, I completely agree. And just a couple things that you said there um, just kind of made me think. Uh, you know, as far as as far as the, you know, and we can kind of go obviously uh, much further down the rabbit hole in, in future episodes, but really the basis for um, one of the base reasons for, for Satoshi Nakamoto to, um, you know, have this issue in the first place and wanting to create Bitcoin to fix it was the inherent trust that everyone has to place on centralized organizations, um, especially in terms of the finance and, and money realm. Um, and so, going into the Bitcoin space, uh, it's really kind of fascinating because you kind of, like you said, Nick, everybody's open with their time. You get to speak with people. I mean, I went to the Bitcoin conference and I was talking to people who I was reading their books like two weeks before that. And I was like cool. feeling like a fanboy. and, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't unique. You know, they're just all out hanging out with everybody and, and chatting. And that was a really electric time. And I think that the fact that the culture of trust is kind of instilled within the community of Bitcoin. And, and kind of like one other point that I'll just add on to that is that the, the conviction it's uh, it's, you know, when someone is, is uh, highly um, firm in their beliefs uh, and uh, maybe, you know, you're, you're, you're listening to them talk, maybe it strikes up something within yourself um, conviction is typically going to uh, make you reflect on your own beliefs. And that has been um, a huge, huge impact for me in, in my learning about Bitcoin and, and just learning about um, finance in general, because I didn't really ask those questions. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that, that, uh, that it's just a really great opportunity to, to 
um, you know, dive into to things that you're really, really interested in and, and have that openness, have that inclusion, have that um, ability to, to pull information and, and not have uh, information being, you know, locked away. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's really important. I mean, uh, you know, as much, it's like, I, sp I spent $120,000 on my college degree. And the day after I graduated, I, uh, lost all the access to my, uh, scholarly articles and stuff, you know? So it's like, you know, it's just, it's kind of this, this openness of information and transparency that, that really resonates with me. So. Yeah. And even I should put an asterisk when I say conviction, because it's a highly informed conviction, because I've seen people that have high conviction with very low amounts of information and understanding. And despite that seem to be supremely confident, despite not really understanding what they're confident about. And in the Bitcoin space, it seems to be that that conviction actually comes through deep understanding, because in order to truly believe in Bitcoin, you have to understand it. In order to understand Bitcoin, you have to have a pretty deep level of learning um, to know it well. And you also have to basically understand money. And that's a really, that's a really deep rabbit hole to go down in and of itself. And so it seems like, you know, like for me, my conviction in Bitcoin has increased as my understanding has increased. They're kind of like, they go in tandem. And there's also a shitload of really smart people in Bitcoin. <laughs> like that is the most shocking thing. I think, you know, whether it's like Michael Saylor, who's a freaking rocket scientist from MIT, talking about how uh, Bitcoin is the supreme uh, tool to store, you know, thermodynamically stable storage of energy, uh, monetary energy, or like Jason Lowry, you know, the dude from Space Force on Twitter talking about his thesis, or just like the, the level of brain power uh, of the culture of Bitcoin, of the people that are going into the Bitcoin space, like it's astounding. And it's so cool. You know, the whole thing of like, try and be the dumbest person in the room. Well, I feel like the dumbest person at all times when it comes to Bitcoin. And that's like, that's a really exciting thing for it's me. Great it's thing. like everyone, you, you can learn from everyone. And that's really cool. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree uh, with that. <laughs> so part of culture is also um, language, right? Like um, certain cultures have unique languages, but they also have unique terms like slang terms or uh, sort of terminology that is unique to the culture that you find yourself within. So maybe this is a good place to kind of move on to breaking down um, some of the language or some of the jargon of Bitcoin. Um, and I think knowing these terms and what they mean is sort of part of what can make you feel uh, part of the culture. And so this isn't an exhaustive list, but we'll just go tic-tac-toe, you go, then I go, and uh, we'll make sure to cover some of the um, terms that will be helpful for beginners to know if they hear that. And so, uh, yeah, let's dive into that. We'll, we'll go there for a bit, maybe go through like, I don't know, 10 or 15 terms of our choosing. Um, and then, uh, then we'll move on to, uh, elders. So I'll let, I'll let you go first if you'd like to. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to. Um, so, uh, you know, just thinking back on my own learning, I'm like, what, 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 uh, what, 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 what were some of these terms that were the most confusing to me <clears throat> first? And, uh, one of the terms that I always heard thrown around quite a bit um, because uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a confusing term is blockchain. And so I wanted to, to define that first because that is a, uh, one of uh, a fundamental parts of, of Bitcoin. Yep. So uh, a blockchain is a public list of all blocks that have ever been mined, ensuring that everyone knows what Bitcoin belongs to whom. 
many nodes on the network keep a copy of the blockchain. And so that, I guess, just talking about that is going to pull up two definitions, block and node. So we can kind of work on those. But I think it, to define blockchain, it simply is a ledger. And it is a distributed ledger um, that is uh, essentially recorded um, and saved on every computer or node um, that is participating in the Bitcoin network. Right. Yeah, that's an important one. And that one gets uh, misused and sort of twisted a lot. You know, like the people that say, oh, it's not about Bitcoin, it's about blockchain, the technology under it. It's like, it, to me, when someone says that, it literally just shows a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what the blockchain is. Because if you understand what it is, you understand that we only need one. <laughs> um, and the way I think of blockchain, because I've, I've explained this to many people, and my explanation is like different every time because I'm trying to experiment, like what way actually resonates with people so that they can understand this in a non-abstract way. And one that I'm having good luck with is that it's a, it's a, like a block is just a unit of information. So the blockchain is simply a chain or a string of sequential blocks of information. And it's basically like a giant, you know, people understand um, bookkeeping, like a bookkeeping book is like a ledger of what, what you're receiving and what is owed. And so the blockchain is like a giant book that's publicly available for everyone to see and has the bookkeeping records of every transaction that's made on the Bitcoin network. And every 10 minutes, a new page is written by miners in this book and then verified by nodes to be correct. So it's like a giant um, bookkeeping record book. Um, and each page would represent a block and the sequential nature of the pages would represent the blockchain. Miners write the pages, nodes, which can be run by anyone in the community, verify that what the miners wrote is correct. And that's the one I seem to be having luck with because it gives some sort of tangible element to the abstract term of blockchain. Yeah. And there seems to be, you know, and, and you just kind of hit on the like kind of checks and balances, uh, whole process of, of, uh, of each piece, you know, the nodes, the miners, and, uh, and of course the ledger and, and the importance of that. And, um, so I think, yeah, that's a, that, that's a good place to start. Um, what would be your next definition, Nick? Um, I, I like the term orange pill because <laughs> I, nice. I kept hearing that. It's like, you know, I kept hearing orange pill and it was like always with a picture of like Morpheus holding two pills from the matrix, but to orange pill someone, um, means that basically when you open somebody's eyes to the reality that not storing your monetary energy in Bitcoin is risky, that's my definition, right? Uh, and to orange pill someone is to essentially be an advocate for Bitcoin and have an interest in, in showing people what they might not know. And so I like that pill. It's like when you, or I like that term, when you orange pill someone, you're essentially, it's, it's a different way of, it's like the Bitcoin jargon way of wording. I'm teaching someone about Bitcoin. I'm trying to orange pill them. So I like that one because I'm trying to orange pill as many people as I can yeah. and formalize my role as a, an orange pillar as like one of the main things I do to make um, revenue in my life or to be of service to others. So yeah, I like that one. Yeah. I think it's funny. Cause like uh, to me, I was like, wait a second, there's a third option now. This is, <laughs> yeah. this is cool. So yeah. <laughs> Um, I, went, I went and did a um, peyote ceremony in Costa Rica at the start of this year. And it was funny because the guy that was running, it was like, you know, people offer you the red pill or the blue pill. He's like, take the green pill. 
And I'm like, <laughs> I'll take the green and the orange pill and blend them together. I don't know what that color <laughs> makes when you blend them, but that's the pill I want. <laughs> right <on. laughs> I think another, another term that um, is important for someone who is just getting started in Bitcoin um, is uh, Bitcoin address. Because if you're going to uh, purchase Bitcoin, you will most likely uh, have an address at some point in time, uh, whether you know that is a uh, hot or cold address. And we can kind of go into that and what that means um, in the future. But a Bitcoin address is a string of letters, 25, 26 to 35 letters and numbers that represent a destination for Bitcoin payments. And so that's a very unique uh, string of letters that is unique to your address only. Yeah, that's a good one. And I think that almost brings us to a, a place where we should probably distinguish between uh, like a public key and a private key, which is, you know, your public key. And the metaphor I've been using is to email. Um, I've been having good luck with that, where instead of, you know, like the public key and private key can be kind of abstract for people. So the, the public key is the wallet address, which is what you just said, string of numbers and letters um, right. that essentially is derived from a private key, which we'll talk about in a sec, and essentially lets you receive Bitcoin, lets you receive transactions. And that public key is like your email address. So you can give it to other people. It's what people use to send you um, some sort of message. In this case, it's a value message instead of an informational message. And then your private key is what that public keys derived from. And that would be like your, your email password. So that's what you need to be able to access the emails that have been sent to you. That's the private key is what you need to be able to access the Bitcoin that's been sent to you and then be able to uh, send that to other people. And so, you know, maybe we should even go to wallet next because the wallet is really what takes care of generating these things. And your wallet is essentially your interface with the Bitcoin protocol. Um, just like your email address is your interface to the informational protocol that is the internet. And so how are you, when someone asks, because the problem with Bitcoin is like, Bitcoin is not a coin. It's also an asset and a network. It's not, you know, you can tell it was maybe branded by someone who wasn't a marketer because um, <laughs> a wallet is more of a keychain than it is an actual wallet. But when someone says, what's a Bitcoin wallet to you? How do you describe that? Like in simple terms? Yeah. Um, gosh, it's like, it's like a, a wallet to me is like a, um, a digital online representation of, uh, uh, of a physical wallet. I mean, the, the way that I like to explain it to my parents is, um, you know, it is really explaining it as, you know, Bitcoin is, is similar to cash similar to um, money, cash money, in the way that, you know, you can protect it by putting it in a wallet. And by keeping it in that wallet, um, you know, it's, it's, it's closed up and, and kept away. Now, there's two different types of wallets, I think two different major wallets. Now, you could go to any, any exchange, any, um, any place where you can buy Bitcoin, and you can purchase the Bitcoin and keep it on this exchange. And that would essentially be keeping it on their wallet. And that's, um, you know, that may or may not have a public uh, key or a Bitcoin address to it. But really, the, how I view it and how I explain wallet is that, um, you know, I, I, I use cold storage and uh, we, can, we can 
jump we'll do a whole that. episode on wallets we'll talk about yeah. hot cold hardware software different features all that kind of stuff but let's keep it like pretty super uh high yeah. level right now <laughs> i guess like keep it you know it's like a it's like a way to keep it to yourself you know it's, you it's a way to keep it uh so no one else touches it you know and keep it in your wallet keep it in your pocket yeah and to me a wallet is just a piece of software that allows you to send and receive transactions like you can have different types of wallets there's wallets for different purposes but at the end of the day it's a piece of software that interacts with the bitcoin protocol that allows you to send and receive transactions um and built into that is really like that piece of software essentially manages all your keys it generates public keys so it's like a tree right you have your private key that's the master it's it's almost like if you had a, a, a wall unit of like 50 lockers and one key could open every single locker, um, that's the master key. That's your private key. From that, all of those lockers are created based on that key. And each of those lockers, you can give the code to those lockers to different people and they can that allows them to put something in the locker, but not to take anything out. So it's like each locker has a slot. You tell someone, okay, locker 5A is kind of like a, a public address. It can be generated from your private key. Someone could put something in there, but they can't open it. And you have the master key to open all the lockers up and be able to take things out. So um, yeah, like I said, we'll do a whole episode on wallets. Cause I, I think, I mean, wallets are one of the most important parts of participating in Bitcoin because that's essentially your connection to the, to the network, right? Without a wallet, you can't do shit. And so we'll talk about that deeper, but as it stands, at a super high level, it's a piece of software, a, a tool, which is a piece of software that allows you to interact with Bitcoin and interact. send and receive um, units of, of value, um, pieces of Bitcoin. That was a, yeah, so public, private key. And we'll do, I mean, you know, I want, I, my hope is that my mom will listen to this and she'll fire me all the questions she has after listening to this. And then we can sort of clarify, okay, well, is there a better way to explain wallets? to someone who has no understanding of Bitcoin. And I think over time we'll get better and maybe we'll end up um, re-recording certain episodes as we get better at explaining this. Um, one that I like that people are hearing more and more about is hash rate. And you know, at a high level, hash rate is essentially the amount of computing power that miners are using to validate the blockchain, to create the blockchain. So it's the amount of hash rate is the amount of computing power needed in order to generate an extra page in that public ledger. And so that's kind of all people have to know because they keep, I've heard people say, what's hash rate? What is, what is that? It's like, well, you don't have to know anything about hashing, but hash rate is the amount of computing power used by miners to make new pages in that public ledger. That's my favorite definition of that. Yeah. I think that's something that I'm still actually, you know, um, wrapping my head around, but you know, the more that you learn about the, the mining side of, of Bitcoin, you can, you know, uh, definitely start to wrap your head around that. And it's a pretty fascinating, um, space. I think where I, where I want to kind of go next is I guess one of the fun definitions for me and, uh, for everybody out there, you know, um, uh, on the open seas, uh, learning about Bitcoin um, is going to come across uh, this occasionally, um, probably more often than not, and that is FUD. And uh, like, what does that mean, FUD? It's, it's, it's F-U-D, and that means fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And the first time that I heard like that, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes plenty of sense. And uh, yeah, that, that totally like resonates with me, but I don't necessarily think I was able to pick it out um, when, when I was first learning about um, Bitcoin. And so, I mean, you know, to me, like FUD could be any article out there 
um, any anything that you hear on the news that could be creating some fear, uncertainty, or doubt within yourself. And if you're able to recognize that, um, you know, or or at least see it, you know, from an out, outside perspective, then then take a moment to critically think about the information that you're hearing and think about the resource, um, you know, where it's coming from and, uh, you know, and, and pull it back on yourself. And I think that that's a really important term. It has helped me weed out the noise from, from my, um, from my signal when I've, you know, when I'm pulling in the information that I think is going to be most important for me and the most truthful. So that's kind of a, a good term for anybody who's learning about Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a really good term. And that's an important one too. I like what you said about uh, being able to identify it uh, because there is no shortage of FUD in, in the world. And, and it's like the things that um, evoke the most powerful resistance from the people who maybe have a financial interest in that thing not going mainstream um, tend to get the most, like the things that are most important, get the most fun, essentially. And, um, you know, we're going to be doing an entire show on the Bitcoin store about FUD because there are so many different, you know, whether it's, uh, energy or whether it's security, um, or, there's so many areas, uh, you know, government regulation or so many areas that people that the media or, um, you know, let's call them bad players that are just pissed that something might be replacing them are putting out there uh, to influence people's perception and to essentially taint the narrative by putting some fear in the system to stop people from learning deeper. And the deeper your understanding is, the more uh, resilient you are to FUD, right? Like if you have a good understanding of Bitcoin, it's kind of like kryptonite for people who are trying to spread FUD because you see beyond it, you see through it. And um, yeah, the show is going to be called FUD Busters. <laughs> and it's essentially taking a critical because because some of the there, I think there's a law or principle called Brandolini's principle where it takes an order of magnitude more energy to um, prove a piece of bullshit wrong than to put it out into the world. It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, Bitcoin's going to going to evaporate the oceans. And then people are, that don't understand are like, oh, yeah, it must be terrible. I don't want our oceans to be evaporated. So I'm just not going to look into it. Um, but to actually go into why that's untrue, you have to go really deep into uh, why Bitcoin uses energy, uh, why it's a good use of energy, why Bitcoin's energy use is not going to evaporate the oceans. And so, yeah, I think the Fudbuster show will be good for us to get a really clear understanding of the different subsets of FUD, the different areas that fear, uncertainty, doubt is put into the world uh, and really take a critical thinking and highly uh, researched perspective to basically, you know, place it all on the table and then uh, diffuse the bullshit, essentially. So, yeah, fear, uncertainty, doubt. There is definitely no shortage of it, um, but the deeper your understanding is, the more immune you are to being swayed uh, in your perception from what people are saying that is actually not based in reality or truth. So yeah, that's a, that's a really important term. Thanks for bringing that one up. Yeah, definitely. One of the ones that I like is hodl because I hear that a lot and I uh, identify as a hodler. So and I, it's got a funny story. So in 2013, some drunk dude went on a Bitcoin forum and tried to write hold, but made a typo and wrote hodl. And the definition around that was essentially formed to be hold on for dear life and is kind of like slang for avoid selling your coins despite price volatility at all costs. And I think being a hodler means when you accumulate the world's best money, you do not relinquish it. You do not send it. You do not spend it. Even if the price crashes 50%, if you understand what this thing is and take a long-term mindset, then you could be a hodler. So I, I really like that term. 
Yeah. And that just like perfectly riffs off of, uh, off the FUD too. Cause really, you know, to, to be a hodler, you have to see through the FUD and you have yep. to, you know, be able to, to, to make a good source of information for yourself, you know, cause we're, we're, you know, I'm not a professional, I'm not a CFA, you know, I don't know about, uh, energy consumption, which is a huge topic right now in Bitcoin, but I have uh, been able to hear and read these articles that um, could potentially be misleading and also uh, locate sources in my network um, that I um, resonate with and, and find truth within, you know, so that that kind of um, speaks for itself. I guess one of the other uh, definitions that I wanted to bring up um, is a sat or a satoshi. It's funny. That was the and, next one I had on my list too. <laughs> I think like it's really important um, that that everybody knows that you can buy less than a Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Um, and uh, so satoshi, a satoshi is the smallest uh, divisible denomination of Bitcoin. And that's going to be uh, 100 million satoshis in one Bitcoin. And um, so I guess that's the simplest way to, to explain it. And uh, if you think about it as like a, as a dollar, I mean, you can really, really, really micro per, you know, uh, send or purchase uh, Bitcoin in Satoshi's. So if you, I mean, you know, off the top of my head with, with the, you know, price uh, being at 47,000 or wherever it's at today, um, you know, you could get about uh, 2000 or, you know, roughly about 2000 Satoshis for a, a one US dollar. Sure. And so it's, uh, that's just, you know, for, for a quick uh, comparison, just to kind of put that into perspective for someone. Yeah. I think that's really important to mention because it's still a common misconception that Bitcoin's too expensive to buy now, but people don't realize how, how, um, how divisible Bitcoin is. Right. And like you said, if one Satoshi or sat for short, is one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin, uh, you can essentially buy 10 cents worth of Bitcoin, especially with Lightning um, now now kind of in play. And so this whole, uh, and that's named after Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the creator of Bitcoin. And the, you know, a, a parallel term to that is stacking sats. And that essentially means accumulating Satoshis over time, typically through something like a regular buy or dollar cost averaging. But yeah, I think uh, people need to know that in terms of like, you can divide a dollar into a hundred cents. You can divide a Bitcoin into 100 million units. And that's like some impressive shit, right? When you, and when you engineer money from scratch, you essentially create um, the best form of money on purpose. And, uh, you know, I think the divisibility element, when we get into what is money, which is, I believe the next episode we're going to do next week. Um, one of the important properties of money is divisibility. And when you look at Bitcoin, it wins that game you know, it, it beats out all the other forms of money. Like gold is not that divisible. What are you going to do? Bring a gold bar and slice off a chunk to pay someone for something? It doesn't, it just doesn't work very well. And so whether it's uh, aggregating or um, separating units of Bitcoin, you know, you can have as many full coins as you want, but you can also have very small units. And I think um, the way that most people are going to buy Bitcoin is in sats, is not in actual full coins. So that's a good term. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, another one that I think people are going to hear about a lot, and I think um, opens up a bigger conversation, but we'll keep it fairly high level today. And we'll do, um, we'll have an entire show. I'm not sure what the title will be, but it'll probably be tokens and tech projects. And, and those refer to things that are known as altcoins or within uh, the Bitcoin community, shitcoins. 
And essentially, an altcoin is a crypto, like this is based on Investopedia's definition. And there's there's going to be a lot of nuance with this. So this is not going to do justice to all the nuance, but uh, Investopedia labels it as an altcoin, uh, as a cryptocurrency with little or no value, and that has no immediate and discernible purpose other than to increase the wealth of its creators. I added that last little bit. That mm-hmm. wasn't an Investopedia. <laughs> but these, these alternative, because there's like 6,000 plus coins, maybe even more. Um, and most of them are sort of copycats of Bitcoin or that sell themselves as improvements to Bitcoin. And most of the time, those end up taking advantage of people who don't actually understand Bitcoin and maybe feel they relate to the party. And so, you know, the whole thing with, I, I really like to view Bitcoin as sound money. And that's separate from all of the rest of crypto, which is mostly made up of altcoins or tokens. And unless you, you know, I like to view those altcoins or shitcoins as some people call them. Although I think that's, I think we just have to be understanding that you can use that term, but it doesn't mean every other thing is shit. It just means that maybe they're not polished yet. And just like a tech startup, right? If you want to invest in a tech startup as a VC, you have to have a really deep knowledge of what you're investing in, or you're probably going to lose your shirt. And with most of those altcoins, most of them will go to zero. Some of them, some of the unicorns will do well but none of the unicorns have actually been fully formed yet. Like they're still all under construction. And so, you know, unless you're really ready to go do a deep dive and learning about them enough to be in the know and um, know where to place your money, my advice to people is just like focus on learning sound money. That's hard enough to learn. Focus your energy on that because that's immediately tangible, important, and that has solved a real problem. And then dip your toes in the tech projects if that's what you're into. Um, but, you know, if someone says, what's an altcoin to you? What what comes to mind? Yeah. Um, and did you go I through think, that phase? Did you did you get into altcoins at all? I never I never got into altcoins, thankfully. That yeah, uh, was not a, like, a, a path that I had to take. Um, and I think that was just, like, because I'm a natural, like, skeptic, I would say. Like, I just wait Same. and wait and listen and listen and listen until I feel that that 100% conviction. And I found that with Bitcoin um, really easily. But, like, when people, when I say, like, yeah, what is an altcoin? Um, well, it's, uh, if it's, uh, it's, it's, it's typically centralized. It's, like, always going to be centralized. And that is not Bitcoin. Um, any, any other coin than Bitcoin usually compares themselves to Bitcoin. And uh, like you said, it's kind of that, that same idea, that mentality of like, I missed the boat, you know, I want to create this next, this next coin, we're going to make it so awesome, but the next Bitcoin, that's what people say. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, is that like, you know, the, the Bitcoin ecosystem has been without a centralized leader since 2010 or 2011. And so yeah. if you really think about the project itself as a, uh, a creation of the community it's itself, you know, and that's where the real power comes from. It's, it's not created by anyone in particular. There's no one calling the shots. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, I would love to, I, obviously in future episodes, we're going to dig into the like immutability of Bitcoin, but that kind of is a real like high level overview of how um, powerful it is because it is, yeah. it is not centralized. It is, it is a decentralized and, and every day it's becoming more decentralized. Yeah. And I think that decentralized 
nature of it does two really important things. Number one, because no single party or group of people control it, you don't have to trust that they're making decisions in your best interest because we're all making the decisions together by consensus. It's a slow process because when you're dealing with sound money, the goal is to move slow and don't break anything because it's really important, right? Whereas like the tech startup mentality is like move fast and break things like Zuckerberg says. And I think so decentralization protects you from having to trust people who are in charge and make decisions maybe that you want or don't want. But I think the more important one in the end is actually decentralization eliminates a choke point. So if there's one leader, one person that created this thing, well, if a government's pissed off that that thing is like taking away some of their power, they'll just target that person personally or, or in terms of the business. And it becomes a choke point where they can be told that the thing can be shut down basically, or they can be penalized and eliminated. Whereas with Bitcoin, because decentralized, there's actually no choke point. Right. Like, and maybe this is a good place to bring up the next term, which is a node, um, because the decentralization of nodes and the fact that anyone can run a node, like I literally have a node right over there. It's a Raspberry Pi, a little mini computer and a, and a solid state drive. And it was super easy to set up. And basically a node is a computer that enforces the rules of the protocol and shares data with other computers on the network. And most importantly, verifies that miners aren't breaking the rules. And so you know, I heard a really good analogy one time that um, talked about mining Bitcoin as like a giant Sudoku problem. So Sudoku problems are hard to solve, takes a lot of energy to solve the Sudoku problem, but they're not that hard to, to verify once they're solved to make sure that they actually are solved correctly. So a node is like verifying that the Sudoku puzzle is correct, this giant Sudoku puzzle. And the miners are the ones putting computing power forward to solve the Sudoku puzzle. And so running a node really is what contributes to decentralization. Because if you shut down a thousand nodes in a country because the country doesn't like Bitcoin, um, there's nodes everywhere on planet Earth. And all it takes is one node to survive and the blockchain ledger can be maintained and then shared with anyone else who wants to run a node. And I think that's really the, it's such a beautiful, elegant invention. <laughs> like it's, it's a really, it's so complex and nuanced, but at a high level, it's like, I can run a thing that makes sure that this network is abiding by the rules that I've agreed to and that the miners aren't cheating us. And like, if everyone does that, we essentially all are CEOs of our own banks that run based on the same set of rules. And that's some cool shit. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think, I mean, one of the coolest things for me is, and I haven't gotten to the point to where I'm running my own node yet, but that is a goal of mine in the near future. Um, and, uh, you know, being that you could like whip it up on a raspberry Pi nowadays and the UI, um, which, you know, I think we talked about briefly in the last episode is so, um, much more streamlined that anybody can do it. Um, it's so much easier now with umbral. It was like, I was intimidated for a long time because I tried to run a node like two years ago and it was at, as soon as command line prompt showed up, I was like, I'm out, <laughs> I can't do this. I'm out of here, but umbral made it really easy. So whenever, if, and when you do do it. And we'll probably fire up a tutorial on the store of just like my thoughts on the process of putting a node into, into life. Um, but yeah, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think, uh, no worries. And I just think, uh, you know, to really, uh, kind of like grok or like understand, uh, the power of the node is like what Nick is running right now is he has it on his node is a copy of every single transaction ever made on Bitcoin ever from day one. And that is, so cool. uh, it's just really crazy because if you think about uh, it, 
having the power to be a global monetary system, uh, processing the, you know, just gigantic volumes of, uh, of, of money that is in the world. It's just uh, really, really cool that, that something like that can be utilized. And not only that, but the entire system can be held up on one node and then replicated off of that one node if that were the, the case, which, you know, I mean, in, I don't know the numbers at all, but there's got to be hundreds of thousands of nodes running Bitcoin all over the world. I th- I, some, that's a guess, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think last time I saw there was 50,000, but I don't know if that's correct. Like when we talk about, I think we should do a show at some point talking about like, wh- what's the point of running a node? Like, why should you invest in a node? What's the uh, importance of running a node? Why, like, what does that do for the safety of the network? What does that permit you in terms of access to information, being able to verify yourself and not trust literally anyone? Um, but as it stands, just the fact that a non-tech savvy human like myself could put together using YouTube tutorials, a, a little <laughs> tiny computer, plug it into the router and it just did, did everything thanks to Umbral. Um, shout out to Umbral because you've, what the, the interface you've created. And, and this morning I set up a lightning channel and I was like, I thought I was really far away from even touching that because it seemed very daunting. Once again, with Umbral, they just crush it. And the fact that there's so much, and this is one of the things in terms of generosity and open, uh, the open nature of Bitcoin is like, there's shitloads of community forums on Umbral because I had like tons of obstacles as I was doing this, but I was like, this is important enough and deserves some of my time. I went into the community forums, all the questions were answered. It ended up, uh, I ended up being able to fund a channel. And I was like, wow, this is getting so much simpler in terms of the UI, uh, like way quicker than I anticipated. And, you know, it's the reality is like when email first came out, you had to have a shitload of computer knowledge to be able to send an email. And, you know, 10 years later, my mom can swipe her finger on her iPad and send an email. And the evolution of the user interface is actually what determines the user base, right? Because my mom couldn't use email when you needed to know uh, like TCP IP coding, but she can send an email when she just has to swipe her finger. So I I don't think we're that far away based on how fast Bitcoin is progressing and the infrastructure and the people working on Bitcoin. Uh, We're not that far away from my mom being like, it's actually easier and a better experience for me to have a Bitcoin wallet than it is for me to interact with my bank because banks (laughs) suck. Yeah. Like they're just the experience I, I've, I keep being forced to interact with the, the legacy system. And it just reminds me like, wow, it is so terrible because they're just given a monopoly and they don't care about the user experience. There's no incentive to improve the user experience because you have to go see them regardless. Um, and all that's changing. So it's going to be interesting to see how that transition happens from <laughs> legacy banking to uh, global open banking Um from, you know, with people and using software uh, that is constantly evolving at like lightning speed. No, no pun intended. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And talking, actually talking about lightning, because you did mention that. Um, and uh, and even before, uh, when we were talking about altcoins, I had, uh, I was thinking about layer two. And, and that's mm-hmm. just one of the other definitions that I wanted to bring up. Because, you know, if you're doing, uh, any of you out there that are doing research into Bitcoin, and uh, you will most most definitely be listening to uh, why other coins are better than Bitcoin or why Bitcoin is better than these other coins and you know a lot of the a lot of these uh, other cryptocurrencies uh, like to use the um, the 
I guess, a comparison that Bitcoin is old technology. It's an old protocol. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like uh, the, I keep hearing the AOL, you know, of, of the time. And I think that's just totally, I, I don't believe that. It's FUD. It's FUD. It's FUD. And uh, what really, so I guess I, I want to kind of like move that definition into layer two and, and a couple different things. So layer two is essentially a... Um, a secondary framework or protocol built upon the existing Bitcoin network. And so two things that I just want to mention about layer two, and then Nick, you can probably dive a little bit more into detail. Um, Maybe just is, to clarify, layer two with Bitcoin is lightning. So if you hear lightning network or lightning, that's basically a layer two application on the Bitcoin base chain. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the, the cool things about layer two is that it's, it's so um, limitless at this point in time. And so, you know, one of the things that just came to my mind is we were talking about Satoshi's earlier, you know, the smallest divisible unit of Bitcoin right now. Um, and, uh, and, you, you know, you think about the total, the total um, Bitcoin that is going to be available, and that's, you know, 21 million coins. Um, some people are like, well, that's, that's not, you know, how, how is that going to make sense? You know, if that, if that doesn't make sense to you, we can talk about that more in a future episode. But layer two allows you to add on to the existing protocol. And it's really fascinating um, to see some of these things that 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 are playing out in real life today which which is like nick is talking about with lightning and uh, some of the things that are going on with twitter and the, and the uh the payment system on twitter it's really cool and uh so layer two is um just a second secondary framework on top of the base um layer right. yeah and i think okay so a couple of things come to mind there 21 million coins times 100 million i believe is 2.1 quadrillion units and that is the total amount of units available uh, that will be available. And quadrillion doesn't actually make any, there's no framework for us to understand numbers that big, even trillion. Like I'm starting to be numb to the word trillion because it's getting thrown around so much, but like <laughs> that's some crazy shit. A trillion is a lot of freaking zeros. Quadrillion yeah. is even crazier. And so, um, yeah, like what the two biggest criticisms of Bitcoin and which I still hear people say, people that I, you know, I have some friends that are like, they just love crypto. Right. And they know a little bit about Bitcoin, but they know very little. And they're just into, you know, whether it's NFTs or Solana or whatever. Um, they love all the stuff. I'm just like a sound money maximalist where like I just folk, I, I only have a certain amount of energy. This shit is really complex to understand. If you're going to be putting a lot of your wealth, you should understand it deeply or know someone that does so that you can ask them questions. So I've literally just taken tunnel vision to Bitcoin because it's the only thing I have the bandwidth to learn about deeply. Um, and in order for me to have a, a, a tolerance of the risk going into something, I have to understand it. And two of the biggest criticisms of Bitcoin is that it's slow, right? You have to wait for a certain amount of transactions for settlement to happen. And it's expensive. Transaction fees are expensive. Well, the Lightning Network, which is layer two, um, solves those two problems. It's no longer slow. It's instant. And it's no longer expensive per transaction. It's uh, relatively free. What I mean by that is the transaction cost is so small in terms of SATs that it's basically free. It's negligible. And, you know, the, the parallel in our system would be like the, like the banking system, your bank account would be like layer one. So your bank sending money to another bank would be like layer one visa and MasterCard would be layer two. So you can send, you can do transactions every day, as many as you want. And then visa and MasterCard settle with the banks. So it's like, it's still part of that whole ecosystem, but it's a second layer, which solves problems that 
maybe banking infrastructure can't handle as many transactions per second as Visa is ready to, to, to handle. And so Lightning is the equivalent for Bitcoin. So it solves those two problems. Twitter integrated uh, the Strike API to enable Lightning payments on Twitter, which means you can send money to someone in the same way that you send a message to someone. Instant, relatively for free, final settlement. There's no credit. Like that's some magic shit. And I don't think that's even sunk in for me yet because it's not widely distributed enough. They have to test it and scale it up. But like, it's already here, folks. And <laughs> the fact that you can remit money to your family back home the same way that you would send them a Twitter message, uh, like melted my face when I heard about that. It was insane. So so yeah, Lightning is going to be... Uh, and it's funny because people who have criticisms of Bitcoin, it's inconvenient for them to learn about Lightning, <laughs> right? Because all the bullshit that they were claiming... Uh, things that were wrong with Bitcoin, which maybe they then used to direct you to another project, have now been solved. But, uh, you know, software is never finished. Bitcoin software evolves very slowly, but it's never finished. And so the problems get identified, they get worked on by the smartest people in the world, uh, and then they get implemented slowly and, and voted in by consensus. So it's a slow process, but like, you know, Taproot's coming up. That was a big improvement and allows for scalability and privacy. Like all these things get dealt with, but it happens slowly. And if you're using Bitcoin as a store of value, which is mostly what it has been until now, until Lightning, um, then that's what you should want, right? Um, so maybe, I, I guess the last definition I, I would like to uh, mention, and then if you have one more, you can mention it right after, uh, is, is Bitcoiner. The term Bitcoiner, and this is one that you know, I tried to scour around and see, like, is there a is there a widely accepted definition of what it means to be a Bitcoiner? And based on not being able to find anything, what I realized is it's very subjective, right? Um, some people define a Bitcoiner as someone who simply owns Bitcoin. Uh, I personally define being a Bitcoiner as someone who not only just owns it, but is who who is actively taking who is taking an active role to continue learning, understanding, and then teaching. Right? If you want to understand something really well, teach it. And so, to me, being a Bitcoiner means not only holding Bitcoin and being bullish on Bitcoin and, and really being a, it means being a proponent for sound money. And it means some, being someone who believes in it so much that they have serious skin in the game uh, and that they seek to orange pill others, basically, is my definition of Bitcoiner. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I love that. I love that definition, Nick. And uh, I was thinking about it a little bit more this week because we were talking about it at the last episode. And um, yeah, I think like I'm, I'm starting to really change my definition a little bit and edit it. And I think like what it means to me to be a Bitcoiner is uh, like for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm really starting to like put myself out there, make make a little bit of uh, make some mistakes, you know, maybe say something a little silly and uh, try to try to work on my understanding of, of Bitcoin. And the great thing about the community of Bitcoin is that everyone's out there to help you understand. And so I think like, you know, I, I just love that, um, that, you know, it's, it's allowing people to like explore their ideas of money, you know, explore your idea of like decentralization, explore your idea of, um, you know, what, what privacy means to you. I mean, there are so many foundational values that, that we can talk about that reflect back on your life. And like you said, it's going to be subjective. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really like powerful to, even for me to just really think about like, what does it mean for me to be a Bitcoiner? And I think really, um, just putting myself out there and, and, uh, it kind of goes back to the culture of Bitcoin is that you have this like, um, community that's going to welcome you and embrace you. And, you know, uh, it's, it's perfectly fine. You make a couple mistakes on the, on the way, but, um, 
you know, I think uh, I, one one other definition that that I just kind of wanted to wrap up with, because um, I, I don't know, I kind of didn't really think it was that important to me, but I realized it might be kind of misleading and uh, it'll kind of uh, move us into our, our next uh, topic of uh, elders. But the last definition that I wanted to talk about was just the the symbol for Bitcoin. Um because there are so many dang cryptocurrencies out there and there's so many there's some cryptocurrencies that are actually specifically out there to make it seem like they're bitcoin and so yeah. like bitcoin the ticker symbol for bitcoin is btc only and i think that's really important that also you know essentially stands for bitcoin core which is the layer 1 protocol um that that is running right now and uh you know, it, it just brings to mind like one of the one of the first forks in Bitcoin, and that was Bitcoin Cash. And or I guess, you know, maybe not one of the first forks, but this it, it just makes me think because, you know, learning about Bitcoin, you start to watch YouTube. You see these people who have been involved in the crypto space and Bitcoin in particular for a very long time. And then you also see them creating other coins and you're like, wait, wait, hold on. What's so. So what do I believe now? And um so it just kind of moves me into like the the elders topic, and uh, and I think it's really important because um, for me it took me a little while to say okay like I've done a little bit of research I see these um, you know men and women in the in the marketplace and in the Bitcoin ecosphere, and uh, so who am I to believe now and who am I to listen to, um, and so I don't know if you want to like kind of take that away with uh, with and kind of moving into the to the elder. Um, yeah. Topic. Yeah. We can maybe just uh, frame it with just our definitions of elders. Cause I think oh, even right. that one is a subjective one, but just to kind of pin one point back there is like when it comes to Bitcoiner, I think uh, back to the point of like, we're actively forming this culture because we're so early. One of the questions I want to ask every guest that um, I cross paths with is what does it mean to you to be a Bitcoiner? And I think just collecting all these different definitions from all different people in different realms of Bitcoin will give a, will, will zone us into the common threads of what people think of when they say Bitcoiner. Um, and then one last thing I want to mention there is when we write Bitcoin, so you're right, BTC, Bitcoin, that's it. Not Bitcoin Cash, not wrapped Bitcoin, not fucking Bitcoin, dog toy, Jim's coin. Like there's, you got to really clear, clear way to separate the noise from the signal. And, but one thing that's important to note is when you actually write the word Bitcoin, um, and this is sort of a formality that I've come across. Capital B Bitcoin is Bitcoin, the network, lowercase Bitcoin is Bitcoin, the asset. And now with lightning, you can actually, um, participate in Bitcoin, the network without ever touching Bitcoin, the asset. And we'll go, we'll do a whole show on lightning because I think I've been researched. It's one of the main things I've been learning about lately. And there's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, capital B Bitcoin, the network, lowercase B Bitcoin, the asset, uh, they're different things. They're, they can actually be completely compartmentalized to be independent. And we'll talk more about that in future. Uh, but yeah, let's get in the last chunk. And it's all about elders. And I think even the word elder, you know, when I think of, we all hear these mantras, like respect your elders, right? And to me, when I was young, an elder meant someone who was chronologically old, like someone who was older than me and actually like pretty old, like my grandparents or uh, my parents, although it more related to my grandparents. Um, and to me now with my current understanding, like there's a guy called Stephen Jenkinson, uh, who's a fellow Canadian, he talks about eldership a lot because he says we basically have a crisis of eldership and a problem with passing over wisdom from older generations uh, to newer generations, partially because older people simply don't 
wear the shoes of being elders anymore. We have a lot of old people lacking wisdom, which are not elders, right? They're chronologically old people, but they're not acting as elders. And so what does it mean to act as an elder? And to me, being an elder doesn't refer to your chronological age. It refers to the amount of wisdom you've gained and your willingness to share it without personal reward. So to me, an elder is like the equivalent of someone who's going to plant a vineyard knowing that they're never going to taste the wine from those grapes, but it's important for them to do it so that future generations can drink that wine. And so the whole idea of it being someone who has wisdom, regardless of their age, uh, and someone who has a willingness to share that wisdom without getting immediate personal reward. To me, that's what an elder means, but I'd love to hear what, what comes to mind when someone says elder for you. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause like, uh, you know, why is it always like an age thing? Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think, I think, uh, with age, you know, it does come wisdom. And so I think that that is, uh, definitely an important thing, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, when I think of an elder, I think of, uh, you know, my, like my grandparents, um, and, uh, you know, somebody ha who has time to instill the culture that we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, and like, kind of like you said, without any personal reward, um, you know, look towards the future and, uh, and kind of lay the foundation of, uh, of, you know, of the community and of the culture. Um, I think that elders are like a vital importance in, in, in society. And I really haven't really thought about that much, Nick, but it's really true that, uh, there is like a lack of, of eldership, um, in, uh, today's community. And, uh, you know, I mean, that could be, uh, stemming from a whole, uh, you know, a whole different, a uh, whole bunch of different reasons. But I think like, to me, the most important thing to be an elder is, is yeah, to be selfless and to pass on that like priceless knowledge and experience of, of like what it is to be human or like what it is to be a Bitcoiner, yeah. um, you know, what it is to be a, a fairy, you know, my last name, well, you know, it's like can be on so many different levels, but it's, yeah. it's vital in, in, in uh, growing and, and learning. Yeah. And I think part of the crisis of like eldership, if we call it that is um, embedded in the fact that societies aren't, aren't built and, and, uh, don't happen the way they used to, right? Like when we send our old, old people, our grandparents into homes and isolate them, we're no, we're no longer cross pollinating with them. And we're not even exposed to them on a regular basis, right? Like in indigenous cultures, elders are recognized because they've earned it. Uh, they've earned the respect of their community through their wisdom and sort of the balance of how they teach and the actions they take. And I think that for the most part, like you're right. Eldership does come with, as you get older, you accumulate wisdom. But if it was the case that the older you are, the more wisdom you have, we would have the wisest society ever because we have shitloads of old people. But I don't think that's necessarily true. It can be true, but it's not necessarily true. And so I think this whole idea of, you know, the, I always get the picture when I, when I hear elder of like, okay, in ancient times, hunter gatherer times, an elder was someone who, when they spoke at the evening campfire, you listened. You listened because you knew that what they're going to say is probably really fucking important. They're probably not going to say a whole lot of words. So it's really in your best interest to tune into every word they say, because they're, they're probably not going to say it twice. It's your responsibility as a student to learn from the elder, not to be taught, but to listen. And um, 
And yeah, I think, I think forming a definition of elder was the hardest part to try and think of who are the elders for, for me in Bitcoin, because like, well, what, how am I even defining elders? Right. And I like what you said, where it's like cultural traditions get passed by passed on by elders to new generations. And I think that's going to hold true in the culture of Bitcoin, where we were kind of at this early layer we're developing this uh, notion of Bitcoin culture and what that means and what the cultural norms and what the cultural uh, rights and traditions are and the language. And as that develops and evolves, we need to have some sort of Passover. And it's funny because the campfire is now Twitter or can be Twitter, right? Where like you and I have access to insanely smart people who have deep understanding of Bitcoin based on little nuggets of information that they're putting into the digital world as a tweet instead of as a couple of sentences at the campfire. And that's kind of cool, right? It, I mean, it obviously it's a tool, it has a negative as well, or it can have a negative, but I think if you use the tool wisely, uh, we're all invited to the campfire of Bitcoin elders who choose to teach others and share their knowledge. And I think that's super cool. Um, so let's do tic-tac-toe. You go, then I'll go. And we'll just um, list three uh, of our Bitcoin elders because it's very subjective. And maybe just like quickly say their name and why you consider them to be an elder. And if we overlap, then we'll probably have less than six. But that's all good. And uh, cool. yeah, I'll invite you to lead off if you'd like to. Cool. Yeah, I would love to. Um, my first... Bitcoin elder um, that's important to me is Pierre Rochard. And um, Pierre Rochard uh, is a, well, right now he's, I have a little snippet about him off of the Riot Mining website, and I'll just quickly read that. But he's, he's a, he, currently he's the Bitcoin strategist at Kraken, but he's also been involved in Bitcoin as a researcher, investor, and software developer since February 2013. And he also co-founded the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute to create uh, to curate the best primary source literature on Bitcoin and cryptography. And, and that last sentence there is one of the reasons why I think he's, uh, to me, one of the most valuable elders in space um, is because uh, from a very... Uh, early point in time, Pierre Rochard understood the immense importance of Bitcoin and has created free resources for people to, uh, free open transparent resources for people to literally see everything. I mean, you can see the um, conversations that uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was having with, with different cryptographers in, in the communities and all these different really great articles. But that's uh, one of, that's my first choice is Pierre Rochard as an elder, just given all that great information. Oh, yeah. That's a great, the, the Nakamoto Institute is like some of the stuff on there that I've downloaded is like a first pass. And it's like, that's a later article because they can be complex and like heavy. But that is an insane resource library and database. And I didn't even know it was curated mostly by Pierre Rochard. Now, he, you found the description on the Riot blockchain website. Is he on that? Is he associated with that team as well? You know, or are I haven't they just dug, kind of listing him? I, I haven't dug in too much with uh, Riot blockchain, but I could probably just take a quick, you know, poke guess. And, and with all that exciting stuff that's going on in Texas right now, he's probably yeah. got some type of oversight into it. Um, yeah. But I believe that it was actually, um, uh, I know his Twitter handle. Um, he, Pierre Rochard created the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute with Bitstein. Um, okay. Uh, 
who was, uh, gosh, I think his name is Michael and I'm forgetting his last name right now, but uh, those were the two uh, main like creators of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. And yeah, you're very right, Nick. Like it's very um, high level um, intelligent uh, information. I mean, there is some more basic level information in there too, but Mm -hmm. it does give me like some comfort that I can like take one of those articles and uh, for free, you know, and download it or save it on my computer and then just kind of pick through it. And it really has given me um, a lot of transparency and like my own learning. So amazing. Yeah. And I didn't have him listed. So I'm glad you mentioned him. And it's almost like (laughs) through the Church Nakamoto Institute, he's essentially archived his most valuable campfire stories, right? Like he has made, and it's really nice when you find a resource uh, or like a, a database of resources that is vetted, that is curated by someone who has a high understanding and a high level of integrity with the kind of articles they post, because that's just like, it's a gift. He gave us all a gift by creating that website. And I think that is like one of the key elements of an elder is leaving a gift. Like I'm sure he doesn't, he probably doesn't directly get paid for every person that reads an article, but he put it out there because he thinks it's important. And I think that's really cool. Uh, my first one that I listed was the OG, the ultimate elder, which is Satoshi Nakamoto. And I think just the fact that he created Bitcoin, gave this gift to the world, um, knew that in order for it to flourish and do well, he had to eliminate the choke point, which was him and just kind of tapped out of existence. No one knows who he is. We'll probably never know who he is. Um, you know, and the fact that he's left all of his mind Bitcoin, I, I bet you he threw out the private key. I, my guess would be that knowing him is like, you know, if you want to make sure that you never spend those, because that's part of the importance of this immaculate conception of it being created by an anonymous creator that didn't even care to take all the wealth. He'd be one of the richest people in the world if he claimed those Bitcoin from the early mining um, rewards. So to me, Satoshi is the ultimate um, OG elder, because he really embodies the fact that he gained all this wisdom, probably through his whole life, through everything he learned, put something together, gave it to the world without expecting a reward. In fact, eliminated himself from even being able to receive a reward and also receive criticisms, because you can surely know that he would be probably hunted down if he, if he, if he was known, if it was known who he was. Um, so yeah, to me, the number one elder is just Satoshi. And I really hope that you know, the future century, the future decades, um, we have statues of this unknown anonymous person. And, you know, one thing I, one thing I see once in a while on Twitter that people write is we are all Satoshi. And I think that's like a really, it's like V for vendetta, you know, that everyone wears (laughs) the mask because it doesn't actually matter who did it. In fact, we're all responsible for doing it. If you run a node, you're Satoshi. Right. If you own Bitcoin, you're Satoshi. If you're helping orange pill people, you're Satoshi. And I think that's a really cool part of the culture where it's not about any one person. It's it's radical collaboration and open um, communication between people where it's like it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about this because this is way more important than any single one of us and all of us together, because the next um, millennia of humans are going to be able to use this to live in a better world. And that's like that's some like fairy tale shit, but that's awesome. Yeah, I think um, that is. Uh, I don't. I can't believe I didn't think of Satoshi Nakamoto, but, okay. uh, <laughs> but he's I almost like that's... he's almost like the pre-elder. So, but yeah, I think to yeah. me he's an elder. Yeah, I mean it's epic, and and the fact that you know what what really gets me is that you know the more that I think about Satoshi Nakamoto, the more it's like you know Satoshi Nakamoto could be 
uh, a woman, it could be a man, could be a group of people, could be a hundred people, could be an alien. Sure. I really, I really like think that I'll never know. And I think that's the most beautiful thing. And, and that just really, I think hits it on the point, Nick, with like your, your, your definition of being an elder and like, like selflessly passing down what you think is important. Um, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto had a, had a, had a big weight on his, on, on, uh, the shoulders of uh, Satoshi and and he like uh, put that out there for the world and to pass that along and in a very selfless way um, where, you know, he disappeared or he or she disappeared. And, and I think that is just like beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Super cool. Who's your next one? I think, uh, I mean, this one might be a little bit, uh, uh, there's no right know, or wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, uh, I love Max Kaiser and Stacy Herbert and, uh, they have like created a lot of conviction for me. Cool. Um, I really like, uh, so Max Kaiser is a, is a broadcaster and filmmaker. He's been doing the Kaiser report, um, is a financial news and analysis, uh, uh podcast since 2009. He's been a, um, big proponent of Bitcoin and uh, his wife, Stacey Herbert, who's kind of co-hosted that show with him, along with the Orange Bill podcast, which nice. I watch very frequently. Um, and I, I uh, just really appreciate uh, his conviction um, and his uh, his belief and, and uh, you know, his like his no no fucks given um, attitude uh, yes. about Bitcoin and, and everybody else. I think it just has kind of instilled that um, that same attitude within me. So. Powerful. Yeah. And I think everyone's going to have different elders, right? Because, you know, back in the day, if I'm with my tribe and you're with your tribe, we have different elders, right? They embody similar principles and probably serve similar roles. But depending on where your, you know, interweb learning journey leads you, you're going to come across different people than myself. And for me, one of the top ones that I, um, was the first Bitcoin book I bought. And it was the first person on YouTube that I got absolutely obsessed with try to consume everything he created. And that's Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, you know, that dude has, has a magical way of explaining these concepts, um, ad lib unscripted in a way that is absolutely beautiful and very inspiring actually. And so, you know, internet of money, uh, volume one, two, and three, I have all those. I've listened to so many of his talks on YouTube and he is just one of the OG elders and he's a prime example. Like he's not that old. Um, but he clearly finds, and regardless of whether he gets compensated for his work or not, he's not doing it because he gets compensated. Like all of his books are actually open source in the creative commons. You can literally either buy his book or you can download it for free. And I think little moves like that really are hints to me that he cares way more about the dissemination and accessibility of information than he does about financial reward. And, you know, my take is that the money you earn in life is essentially an IOU from society for value that you've put out there. And so I hope he's rich as fuck because he <laughs> has given so much value to the world in terms of the education he puts out there, the conferences that he speaks at. And to me, Antonopoulos is like one of my OG elders and someone that I go back to. If I start to get too deep and kind of confused, I'll watch some of his talks um, or go and dive into his books. And it just gives clarity uh, by, by simplifying and using really tangible metaphors to show like, um, you know, I remember in one of his books, he talked about the currency wars. Um, and this was like a book from like three years ago. And now we're seeing it and how he describes currency wars and how currencies are trying to fight with each other to be more attractive um, as trading partners, leading to this like self-terminating endpoint is like, 
shit, he was talking about this years and years ago and he, he articulates it beautifully. So yeah, for me, Andreas Antonopoulos, elder. I love that. And that, and that's an elder that I actually haven't looked into too much from familiar with his name. Um, cool. but I'll definitely have to, cause you know, I, I feel like, uh, he is a very important figure in, in, in and like you said, and, and, uh, that's the type of person that I would honestly buy his book because yeah. he, I, I noticed that in, in uh, the Bitcoin world is that, uh, there are many books out there that you can just literally hit download on the internet. Um, but you know, um, I mean, I would, I would gladly support somebody who's, who's, uh, pr- you know, promoting uh, free information like that. So I love that. I guess um, my well, the last- cool thing, just one little tidbit, the cool thing about these books is that they're actually just compilations of talks that he gave. So before every topic in the book, it actually gives you the lo- YouTube link of where the original talk was uh, of the original talk. And so it's basically someone took all of his um, top talks and transcribed them into books. And I like the book because I can give it to people as a physical artifact, like um, the Internet of Money Volume 1 I've given to so many people because I'm like, if you're into physical books, uh, here it is. Give it back to me when you're done and let me know what you think. And I think it's really cool that it's basically just an aggregation of videos that he's done, video talks that he's done. And is always kind of cool. So, yeah, just want to put that little nugget in there. That, I think that's even cooler, actually. Um, <laughs> my last, uh, my last elder is uh, Jameson Lop, and yeah. uh, he, I, you know, again, I honestly I don't know too too much about Jameson, but he's really um, he's somebody I follow on Twitter, and I like to watch him when I can catch him on on podcasts and on YouTube a lot because I really like his outspoken nature, um, and uh, he's just he's just kind of one of those guys that's not going to. Um, stand up for anything that um, that he disagrees with. I mean, he's going to put his truth out there and uh, and and uh, bust that fud. And uh, so I Maybe. really I really uh, like you know I, I look up to him for that and I thank him for for what he does. I mean, some of the cool stuff that he's doing is uh, is working on Casa, which is a, another um, multi signature wallet, which we can talk about in the future. But um, he's a gr- he's a great um, guy and. Uh, uh, a good source. And I, I believe that Jameson also has a couple other, a uh, couple websites too, that can point you to like a good, um, bountiful source of, of, uh, basic, you know, level Bitcoin information. Yeah. I think lop.net, that's like one of my favorite libraries for resources. I think it's lop.net. I have to double check, but if you just look up Jameson lop, I think it's the first, um, website that shows up. Uh, and I hope to get him, uh, it would be great to speak with him on the store to hear his story and also add, just talk about like what Casa is doing in terms of uh, the protocols they're putting in place to make multi-sig more available and more user-friendly um, to people. So yeah, hopefully he, I love, I love when you go to his website too. It's like, if you shoot him an email, it says, you can send me an email use uh, and send it here. It's a low priority. Or if you pay a hundred bucks, I'll give you a high priority answer. And I, some people look at that and they're like, oh, that's so cocky. I'm like, that's fucking smart because if you really want to get an answer, his time is worth money. And that's kind of the signal you put out there. It's like your Bitcoin fee. If you want a transaction to be put through quicker, then just bump up the fee. So um, yeah, I've looked at a lot of, he, his site is like a magical resource library because it actually almost like engineers a journey. It's like, if you're just starting, go here. If you're more advanced, go here. If you want to learn about this, go here. And so his, um, yeah, I highly recommend that website to anyone who wants to dive into some of his resources because it's really well put together. Um, my last elder is 
someone who I really only came into my radar, like at the end of last year, it's Michael Saylor. Um, because I think what he's doing, I mean, the dude, uh, doesn't need to make any money. doesn't actually need to appear on all the podcasts and do all the videos, obviously his company and himself hold Bitcoin. So the more, uh, valuable that asset becomes the more like he, he has skin in the game. Therefore he has a financial interest, but I think for the most part, he is incredibly generous with his time in terms of the amount. Um, and also the depth, the amount of podcasts that he's on and the amount of content he creates digitally. Um, I read his book, the mobile wave and reading that, and that was created a while ago. Reading that doesn't surprise me that he's one of the OGs in Bitcoin because like he gets it, he understands where the world is going and how things are getting dematerialized from the physical to the digital. And this is just that applied to money. And so, you know, when I was trying to solve the problem of how do I get TFC's treasury resources that we're not spending secured and safe and not keep melting as Canadian government prints money. He was the guy that essentially open sourced the playbook for doing that for a company. And I'm so grateful for that because it is really intimidating. And, um, and he seems to just be, like I said, very generous with his time and with all the content that him and MicroStrategy are creating to put it into the world, to empower companies and individuals to really understand this and feel good about, um, about really the, the deep-seated principles that give you that really uh, deep conviction in what this is. And the fact that he's a freaking rocket scientist and an engineer and can explain it both in simple terms, but also in the really deep technical terms is like, he's one of my favorite people to watch because he's very high energy. He's very well balanced, very well spoken. Um, he's not like a harsh, I would say a harsh maximalist, but he, he doesn't get, let you get away with bullshit. Um, and like, if someone says something he doesn't believe in, he's like, well, that's not true. And here's why. And he says it so crisply. I'm like, Holy shit, this guy's a master at dialogue. And he just knows it so deeply that it just spins off, um, quickly for him. So so yeah, I think that's a pretty good good list. I'm gonna look at Pierre Rochard because I've heard that name uh, in podcasts, but I've never actually looked into his stuff. Um, so I look forward to checking him out. Um, anything you want to say in closing before we wrap up in the next minute? Uh, yeah, I, I just want to say Michael Saylor is an awesome choice, um, and he's the perfect example of someone where uh, his, the 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 amount of time spent in the space um, is is it, it blows away that that age idea that age comes along with wisdom because right. Michael Saylor ad, uh, admittedly was a, a critic of Bitcoin. Um, for many years and, uh, was, was admittedly, you know, not open-minded to it until the year 2000, which was just last year and 2020, uh, 2020, yeah, 2020, what year are we in? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's another great resource as far as, as, as instilling that deep conviction and also like bringing, like you said, that really high level knowledge, but, being able to like condense it into um, layman's terms and, and really present it very well. I think My Michael Siller is awesome. And, uh, and yeah, P uh, Pierre Richard is a, is a super great resource. He's, he's kind of one of the um, main reasons why I started digging into Austrian economics. And um, I think you'll, you'll love checking him out as well. Very cool. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, you know, we covered culture, we covered some terminology and surely there's more terminology to come and we'll try and be sensitive to the fact that school of coin is for people who don't have, uh, a lot of understanding, if any, about Bitcoin. And so let's be sensitive to the fact that if we say a term, uh, that we haven't yet defined, let's just kind of unpack it a little bit to make sure people aren't getting confused. Um, and yeah, thank you everyone for listening. 
Uh, we'll catch you next time at the Bitcoin store for another conversation. And if you enjoy the content, you can support the project by going to bitcoinstore.com and sending a few sats now that you know what sats are uh, to the QR code on the homepage. Our next episode is going to be what is money? And that's, I think, in order, and the one following that is going to be what is Bitcoin? I think to understand Bitcoin or have context to even knowing what Bitcoin is, you have to first understand money. And so we're going to talk about the functions of money, the properties of money, what is money, what makes good money. So I'm really excited to dig into that because I've been listening to a lot of stuff uh, from Parker Lewis and reading a lot of his articles, and he does a great job of talking about money from first principles and really simplifying a topic that we affects us every single day and that we are taught nothing about in school on purpose or not, it needs to be addressed. And so, yeah, I'm stoked for that. Thanks for watching and we'll catch you later. Thanks.